Welcome to Exec Talk with Paradigm 360, a podcast featuring C-suite executives, entrepreneurs, nonprofit and government leaders expressing how they model leadership, integrity, and authenticity in the marketplace. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the collaboration with thought leaders from across the globe sharing their best corporate practices. Now let's welcome our host, Executive Leadership Coach Christina Lee, for another amazing conversation. Welcome to Paradigm 360. I'm your leadership coach, Christina Lee, and I'm here with another exciting leadership podcast. Today, we are going to interview one of my favorite people. I'm so excited. I have Mr. Ken Oliver in the house, and we're going to talk about the topic of diversity, equity, inclusion, and we're going to talk about some other leadership principles as well. So I'm excited about that. Uh, First of all, welcome to the Exec Talk podcast. We are uh, so thankful to be in this space as we are uh, interviewing leaders across the country to talk about business and leadership, entrepreneurship, nonprofit management. And um, this is a platform that uh, we've really uh, have kind of long awaited and it's finally here. Our goal was initially to launch this in the late fall of 2020, and uh, but we have launched it in 2021 and I am excited about being in this space. So um, Paradigm 360 is a consulting company that uh, runs the gamut as it relates to leadership development. And so I want to go ahead and let our sponsor who is paying for this podcast uh, have an opportunity to share a little bit about uh, our organization so you'll know about us. And after this, I'm going to bring up our spectacular guests. So sit tight. I'll be right back. Paradigm 360 LLC is a corporate consulting firm that specializes in executive coaching, coach training certification, change management, and an array of leadership development tools designed to build culture and produce authentic leadership within your organization. Our team of experts have over 30 years of combined experience working with C-suite executive, leadership teams, middle management, and frontline employees. We take pride in our corporate motto, building world-class leaders one conversation at a time. Please look us up on the web at www.paradigm360consulting.com. Until then, we'll see you at the top. You're listening to Exec Talk with Paradigm 360 with Executive Leadership Coach Christina Lee. After the show, stay connected at www.paradigm360consulting.com. Now back to the show with your host, Christina Lee. Well, 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 I'm so excited to be back. Thank you so much for being with us today on Exec Talk. I have a fantastic guest that is in the house with us today. Uh, He comes in the form of a paralegal and former policy director specializing in criminal justice reform. Ken Oliver is a visionary self-starter with experience building meaningful relationships with individuals from diverse sectors and backgrounds. Ken brings more than 28 years of direct experience with the criminal justice system leading and representing men in their quest to learn, manage, and restore their civil and human rights. He was a major catalyst for landmark litigation to end the use of solitary confinement as a status-based deprivation in California. As a result of his litigation efforts, Ken's life sentence was recalled and he was released from prison early. Soon after his release, Ken was hired as a paralegal for a public interest law firm and quickly became the organization's policy director based on his work and strong advocacy efforts in service of criminal justice reform. During his tenure as policy director, Ken's innovative and impact-driven approaches to solving re-entry and fair chance employment challenges made him a sought-after speaker on issues related to technology and re-entry talent development and the California governor's future work initiative. My goodness, can you help me welcome my good friend, Mr. Ken Oliver. Hey, Ken, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for that uh, amazing intro. You're kind. From prisoner to paralegal. Man, you are bad. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, Ken. It was a long, painful journey. Well, I can imagine. Listen, I am so delighted to have you um, on our on our show today. 
I want to give our internet audience just a tad bit of uh, real estate as it relates to how we uh, actually connect it. Uh, and you have come become one of my closest friends. I, I mean, I am just uh, <laughs> like a kid in a candy store uh, getting an opportunity to share with you today. Several months ago, I was watching a CNN special hosted by Lisa Ling, uh, wonderful special that did a um, segment on several men whom had been incarcerated and started a partnership with a local high school in their area. As a result of that, these young men uh, at this all boys school would come in and read uh, Shakespeare and learn leadership principles with these in gentlemen who were uh, in prison, incarcerated at the time, uh, many of, of whom have multiple, I mean, multiple degrees. Uh, these gentlemen use their time wisely to um, really redefine themselves and relaunch themselves as leaders. And as a result of that, they were pouring back into the lives of these young men. Well, of course, because of the Lisa Ling show, uh, it got national attention across the country and it has just been a phenomenon. And uh, as I watched the show, I just, I turned to my husband and said, I got to meet these guys. And so I went on my, my stocking, I went on my stocking. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I just, you know, I, and I found them, I, I found them and um, it has been history since then. Uh, they are probably some of the most incredible gentlemen that I've ever met in my entire life. I say that sincerely, Ken, I mean it. And what I'm most excited about is that I spend most of my wake awake days um, going into uh, leadership development trainings with people around the country, corporations hire me, CEOs, I coach them. And oftentimes I'm coaching them on things that will help build and change their culture. And what's so exciting about this story around these gentlemen and the crop organization, which you'll learn more from today with Ken, is that these gentlemen crossed the lines of race and created a nonprofit organization, which eventually raised about $32,000 uh, to offset the cost to send a young man who was on the outside, uh, pay his high school um, tuition. And now he is in college. So th just a phenomenal story. Uh, I, I Ken could tell it much better than I can, but Ken, that's kind of the gist of it. I, I want to welcome you. Talk to us about Ken Oliver and who he is, because your bio is extensive. Thank you. Thank you for that, Christina. First, I'd just like to thank you and the audience for allowing me space to have this conversation. Uh, I love having these conversations, especially with you, Christina. You've become one of my best friends as well. And I just really appreciate the work that you do personally with P360. You've, you've given us all uh, tools to create a better organization. You've talked to us about coaching and how valuable that is. And really just been an invaluable resource to us as, as a friend and a mentor. So we appreciate you. And uh, thanks again. In reference to who I am, that's a that's a, that's a big question. Um, I guess I'll start by saying that you know I'm just a normal person that grew up relatively normally uh, as a young black man. Uh, a lot of which was my time was spent in uh, South Central Los Angeles as a youth, where I got involved with the gang culture in the streets in a heavy way. Um, came from a broken family. And found myself at a, as an early teenager really looking for answers in all the wrong places. Um, mm -hmm. And as a result, I had some experience with the criminal justice system. Um, and recently, or I'm about two years removed from serving a 52-year-to-life prison sentence. Um, so that's kind of a, a short summation of where I started and where I've come. So, uh, you know, yeah. Wow. And and Ken, I, I, I really want our internet audience to understand because this, I think, is foundational as we continue to talk. Um, you In your bio, we, we talked about you have been in solitary confinement. I want our audience to know that uh, the California three strikes law really is what kind of got you to that place. Um, I, you know, you had not committed a crime uh, as serious as murder or any of those things, uh, you actually got put in prison on a life sentence because you were joyriding. Is is that correct? Sure. Yeah, that, that, that's what the judge called it. Um, 
He said I probably didn't deserve it, but he was bound by the law that I was a passenger uh, in a vehicle that was stolen. And uh, they call that joyriding in California. And as a result of that, I got 52 years to life in prison. Wow. And so I want our audience to know that the that the wrong was corrected. And then Ken was able to, uh, after many years of serving, uh, almost, well, probably well over 20 some years of prison, you were able to uh, be pardoned and released uh, because uh, of the injustice of yes. uh, kind of how that kind of that that twist that it that it turned of that California three strikes law. So I just want people to know, because oftentimes we judge people prematurely. And I just wanted to set the record straight uh, as to it relates to um, some of the things that you're going to share now. How did you go from prisoner to paralegal? Inquiring (laughs) minds want to know. That's a great question. I certainly didn't go the conventional route. (laughs) (laughs) Um, um, What happened to me when I went to prison is I became a voracious reader. Um, I come from a family um, of educators, and so they would send me books and things to occupy my mind. And so at any given time, I would have about 100 books in my cell, every, everything from classics to business books to historical books, political books, philosophy, and just really enjoyed having vicarious conversations with some of the greatest minds that ever existed on the planet. And one day, um, I was reading a book um, by one of the Black members of the Black Panther Party. And an officer came to my door and searched my cell and asked me why was I reading the book that I wasn't supposed to have the book. Now, mind you, Christina, that I'd received the book from prison officials. My family had ordered the book. It was sent through regular means in the mail from Amazon.com, went through the proper channels to receive the book. It was passed out to me and inspected. Um, And as a result of reading that book, um, which didn't have anything really inflammatory in the book. It was just political philosophy. Um, I was handcuffed and taken to solitary confinement where they conducted an investigation. And what they told me was, is that because I had all of those different types of books in my cell, they thought that I was a threat to the prison administration and sent me to solitary confinement and to another prison where I stayed for eight and a half years. Wow. While I was there in solitary confinement, it dawned on me or it spoke to me about what my ancestors went through when we came over here uh, involuntarily and um, slave masters didn't didn't allow black people to read when when they were slaves. And and the idea behind that was that if you allowed a black person or a slave to educate themselves, they would realize that they weren't really supposed to be slaves. And so that spoke to me from the moment that I walked into solitary confinement. And so I started researching the law about how in America, in the year 2008 at the time, a person that was just minding his own business, sitting in the cell reading a book, could be placed in a prison underneath the prison. And instead of giving up or instead of folding or becoming depressed, I really dug in and became more resilient and determined to unwrite the wrong that I felt was happening to me. And so I spent probably 12 hours a day not exaggerating, every day for the better part of eight years studying the law, constitutional law, civil law, criminal law, and really unwrapping what was behind the 14th Amendment for due process and the First Amendment, which gives us a right to read and have speech. And so that became the foundation for how I became versed in law. Um, And as it turned out, you know, I could hold conversations with most most constitutional law professors across the country. Lawyers recognized that. And, and um, when I was released, you know, they were uh, open to giving me a job as a paralegal to um, share some of my work. Wow. And so since you have been released and pardoned from prison uh, because they did find that it was unconstitutional the way that you were treated and um, the state of California, of course, uh, was sued for that. And yes, as a result. As a result of that, you are here uh, and you are a free man. Tell us, what have you done as a leader since you've been home? Because what what is so fascinating about this is that leadership, Ken, is intentional. And you were in a culture that was designed for you to fold up and die. Now, there are corporations that have toxic, sick cultures, maybe not as bad as prison, but there are corporations that have toxic culture where people come to work 
and they just feel sick the minute they walk in the door just because the culture is so toxic. Because, you know, it can have an adverse effect on one's body. And so this is amazing. And I don't want you to go into the ins and outs of uh, the confinement, but I do want to know um, how did you, what, since you've been out, you've done some amazing things. You've, you've led uh, organizations and check the box so that, that uh, people who were formerly incarcerated can come out and get fair housing. Can you talk a little bit about your role as a paralegal, what you've done in this space, and then we'll jump into a little bit of DEI and talk a little bit about that because I know that's your heart. But can you talk a little bit about what you've done since you've been out? Sure. Thanks for that. Um, When I came home, I started work as a paralegal. And after I did that, probably for about two months, the organization that I was working for, which was a a public interest law firm and an advocacy organization, um, realized that not only could I swing a pin um, in 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 a nice way that I could actually speak. Um, And so they said, we need you to become the policy director and advocate for policy across the state for criminal justice reform. In California, over the last probably five years, there's been a big reform movement to end some of the systems that started structural racism and and formed the mass incarceration. And so I got involved with advocating for voting rights, for example, in California, economic equity, um, equity and child support laws and and debt laws that um, are on the books in California. And really just enjoyed spending a lot of time talking to legislators and talking about um, somebody who had been directly impacted, somebody who was a proximate leader, and how we could offer solutions to problems that, from a vantage point, that they typically didn't have. Um, A lot of times you have legislators or people who have graduated from universities that have a particular perspective, and it's a valuable perspective, but it's not lived experience. And so when when you exclude lived experience in the space, it's hard to make informed decisions about what it takes to write some of those wrongs. So uh, it was really an honor for me to represent a lot of people in California. Eight million people in California have some type of felony or criminal conviction. And so to be able to advocate on the front lines and testify in front of the Senate um, several times uh, about the injustices of criminal justice uh, laws on the books really laid the platform for me to do leading in this state or to lead people in this state and really led to my relationship with some of the people you've met at crop um, mm-hmm. and, and forming what we're doing today. So it's just been a tremendous opportunity. I certainly didn't do it alone. Um, part of my leadership I owe to so many other leaders in the state. Uh, so many people that took me under the wing and, and invited me into spaces as a formerly incarcerated person. And I can honestly say that of the hundreds of people that I've talked to and met and been at the table with not one time of any of them discounted my credibility or ability to make decisions or, um, or my ability to lead them. I mean, several of them have asked me to lead them. So uh, that's kind of what fostered my growth and, and made it possible for me to be able to lead the way that I do is other people. So I, you know, I, I've learned to, to put other people first by example, watching other p- people put me first and it's, it's improved me as a person, as a human being and as a leader. Wow, that's that's fantastic. Ken, I know your heart's desire is dealing with equity and particularly diversity, equity and inclusion. And again, one of the things that I have um, spent a great time in conversation with you and the other gentlemen uh, is around this topic, because some of the success or much of the success that you all crop had uh, on the on the inside as it relates to some of the things that you all were able to do to champion um, teaching uh, leadership in prison to to gentlemen who were incarcerated. And you're going to hear me say that word gentlemen, because, um, you know, Ken, I think it's important that that we um, reinstate dignity. Right. Um, People make mistakes. And and the one thing that I notice uh, that is a theme that when uh, leaders who have proven themselves uh, in our system, the incarcerated system, the prison system, uh, we still try to tie them and hold them to a stigma. And so I want to live in a space, and I think this is important because in corporate America, we're going to have to look at being more sensitive to things like reentry and giving people the opportunity to 
who, you know, companies would miss out. I mean, there are companies that are fighting for guys like you uh, to be in their boardroom because uh, you can present yourself. And not only can you present, but you're a powerful package. And so with the prison culture, uh, getting back to that with the DEI space, uh, you know, I want you to talk about and unpack how difficult it is to bridge leadership across racial lines, because what crop as an organization, and we'll talk about crop later, but what crop was able to do in prison was to form a unity as brothers with, with men who are of different nationalities, backgrounds, ethnic descent. And because of that, you all really got national attention and I don't know if our internet audience knows, but you can be killed in prison if you're African-American and you're hanging with a different race. Or if you are white in prison and you're hanging with a black or a Latino. So I want you to really unpack that because, you know, everything about equity is bringing unity and, and, and fairness and somehow you all modeled this in prison and it changed the culture of prison. And there's something about equity that changes culture. It makes people feel like they belong. And you all did that. You, you all did that at the point of death, right? There, people could have died doing that. Absolutely. And as a result of that, all of you have received clemency, clemency and you're doing this amazing work through crop and you've gotten national and probably international attention. The president, former president Obama, uh, president Obama was just tweeting about you several months ago. Um, I want you to talk about the importance of diversity, equity, inclusion behind prison walls, because sure. what you all did was phenomenal. Sure. I'd I'd love to be able to talk about that. And I think it's important to preface that conversation again with the solitary confinement piece, because prison administrators felt that because I was educating myself, that I was either a black leader or had the potential to be a black leader. And so because of that, they neutralized me. So that's the first piece. When I got out of solitary confinement eight and a half years later, I walked into the law library at a prison and saw a white gentleman sitting in the corner who had about 16 volumes of the Harvard Business Review. And one of the things I did in my spare time while I was in solitary, when I wasn't reading laws, I read a lot of business books and entrepreneur books because that's my passion. And I walked up to this gentleman and I said, why are you here with all these Harvard Business Review books and who are you? I wanted to know who he was. And that's, that's rare in and of itself because he, this gentleman was white. And, and blacks and whites and uh, Latinx people or Hispanics don't, really speak in prison. They're, they're not allowed. It's one of the most segregated places in the country. As a matter of fact, the Supreme Court of the United States, Justice Scalia said, California is one of the most divisive places in the world and is divided by race-based gangs where saying goodbye or hello on a given day can get you killed, which is true. And so, you know, I didn't care about that. I cared about the Harvard Business Review at the time. Uh, so we, me and that gentleman, whose name is Ted, who we'll talk a little bit about later, um, struck up a friendship based on our um, interest and found common ground based on business and entrepreneurship and struck up a friendship. After I got to know Ted for maybe about two or three months, I realized that he was leading a prison group called Phoenix Alliance. And in this group called Phoenix Alliance, which was started by the crop organization, it was a group of diverse people who would assemble into the gym every Friday night of all races, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, to do personal leadership and personal agency work, personal responsibility, uh, undressing some of the false myths that we had about society and about ourselves and really unpacking what was important to us and whether the outcomes we were receiving in life matched the things that we were saying out of our mouth. And when I started talking to Ted and, and watching Ted around the prison, I started to realize that Ted had planted a flag um, several years before I met him. And just to give your audience an idea, you know, again, whites don't shower in the same shower with blacks. We're not allowed to drink from the same water faucet, go to the same places, use the same, the telephones are segregated. 
And, you know, as Christina mentioned, violating these rules can break out riots. And if you ever want to see that, you can look up on YouTube or Google Pelican Bay prison riots or one of the other hundreds of riots that have occurred in in prison that are all race-based. And so what fascinated me about Ted is here was this white cat who was in prison and he had decided to go against the norms of what was happening in prison culture. He talked to blacks, led a black baseball team that had a few Hispanics, but he was the coach and, and led and put it together. He also led and was the quarterback and coach for a football team that was black and Hispanic and white. And I'd never seen anything like that in my 20 plus years of prison. And so after befriending Ted, we just became very, very, very close. And he honestly, he taught me a lot about diversity um, because he was willing to risk his life in a way that I haven't seen others risk their life. Um, And and when whites approached him about why he was um, working with blacks, why was he playing sports with blacks and why was he doing certain things with black? Ted was very defiant and said that, you know, this is what he was going to do despite what the politics were on the yard. And that whatever happened, um, if something needed to happen, then let's go do it in private where um, he didn't have to mess off his release date or, you know, his good behavior record. So he was willing to take whatever was coming. He didn't back down from it. And, uh, you know, I've I've bared witness to watching that happen to Ted several times. Um, So that's kind of what started for us in in reference to diversity. And, and, And now that we're all out. We have a very unique team at Crop, which is made up of two blacks, two whites, and um, a Latinx Hispanic person. And we've just become great friends. And and we've learned from prison that when you're diverse or you create islands of inclusion, you go a lot farther in life um, because it's really a we mentality versus a me mentality or a segregated mentality. And because of the um, different perspectives that we bring, we've all enriched each other. And we've all accomplished things that we wouldn't have been able to accomplish with each other. And, and some of those things are based on race, um, access that Ted has and, and things, people that are drawn to him enrich my conversations and vice versa. And, and you know, Richard, who is uh, Latino, people that he's able to bring into conversations that are people that I wouldn't normally talk to have enriched our practice and enriched our organization um, and allowed us to develop a creativity that we wouldn't have had if we were separated in our own silos, dealing with people who had similar experiences to us. So that's kind of how the diversity piece started. And, and one of the things I love about Ted, from the very first day that we decided to form this version of crop out here, he said from the very beginning, I'll never make a dime more than you. I'll never have another day off more than any of you. And it wasn't just because we were friends. That's his practice as a man across the table, he believes in treating everybody fairly. He doesn't want anything more than the next man or woman receives. And that really has brought out the best in his team members. Um, and that's why he's such a great leader. Wow. You know, um, I'm always trying to figure out in my head, like everybody wants the secret sauce, right? And it amazes me that in prison, in a culture that's designed, it's designed for defeat, that unity and inclusion could then scale what we now know as crop that is touching hundreds of thousands of people around the country. In corporate America, can Corporate leaders pay thousands of dollars to figure out how to do what you all did in a prison that is very toxic. And it it just baffles me because it's almost like we're missing something in the free world. Uh, Because really, at the end of the day, we got to put down our agendas in order to make this happen. And we got to do the work on ourselves in order to make this happen. And I think the one thing that happens more readily in a prison culture is that those people who really want transformation start to work internally on themselves. Right. right. No pun intended, but there's a whole lot of hours to do that. 
right? To really do the work, sure. self-reflection, redemption, all of those types of things. But I think that there is a redemptive process that really has to happen in corporate America around inclusion. And when we talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, we're not just talking, we happen to both be African-American. And of course, we're, we're very passionate about the topic uh, around race. That's kind of our wheelhouse. But but listen, when we talk about equity, we're talking about, um, you know, don't just hire people um, because they're a particular race and now check the box for diversity. Right. Right. Can't That's that. a club. <laughs> That's an infinity group. <laughs> right. Um, right. Let's let's make sure that we have equity sitting at the table. Let's make sure that their voice is heard. And that's not just people of color, but let's make sure that that extends to the person who uh, may be in the wheelchair, who's handicapped, right? Sure. Let's don't just handle them, uh, hire them and don't put in a ramp, right? Uh, and, and check off the box and say, you know, um, that that goes for people who um, are LBTGQ uh, community, yep. um, regardless of uh, where you stand on issues, Everybody has a right to live, to put food on their table, to be able to feed their families, pay their mortgage, you you know, live the American dream. And when we shut the door on people groups because of our own personal hidden agendas, our unconscious, uh, what do we call it in coaching? We call it our unconscious incompetency, right? right? That we don't understand that we don't know what we don't know and we live with these blind spots. So, so what you've been able to do is amazing. And because of that unity, you've gotten national attention. What would happen in corporate America if we could unify? I'm not asking you to take your coworker home <laughs> or invite <laughs> them over for Thanksgiving. I don't think that's what we're saying. We're saying let's make sure that people feel valued and that there's a sense of belonging. Ken, is that is that what I hear when you talk about inclusion and equity and bringing people to the table? Sure. I, I think that there's a couple of different analogies that we can talk about when you talk about DEI, because a lot of people confuse diversity with equity. Mm-hmm. And really diversity and inclusion is inviting people to the party. So imagine if I invited uh, a group of people to the party, it's, it's a house party and it's a dinner party and they're in my home. And I give them a chair to sit, but I don't share any food. That's not equity. Although my dinner party is diverse because I have two or three black people or Latin people or white people, if if it's the opposite, uh, at the table. And I can claim on a box, as you mentioned, that my dinner party was diverse. Mm -hmm. But if I'm not sharing in the pie or the power, which is a a very scary word that people don't like to talk about um, when it comes to DI, because when you talk about equity, that's really what we're talking about is about sharing the resources in an equitable way, right? So if that, like, for example, when women get paid less than men mm-hmm. nationally, that's not an equitable situation if they're doing the same work. You can claim as a corporation that you hire women, that you've included women, that your workplace is diverse, but are you really equitable if you're not paying the same amount of money to a woman who's doing the same work as a man? And obviously the answer would be no. It's the same for people of color. I mean, we had an experiment in America in the early 70s that was called affirmative action, which was really about diversity, but it missed the mark on equity, right? And so 40 or 50 years later, we're having people that are in the streets upset about the equity in America, right? On both sides or what they conceive, what they conceive to be equity. And so again, I'll just go back to the sharing of the resources, the being, being able to say, you know what, this pie is big enough for everybody and I'm going to make sure everybody has an equal slice. That's really what equity is about. And when you have segments of a community or a business or an organization that don't feel like not only is their voice being heard, because a lot of people want to hear my voice, but then are you willing to pay me for my voice? Are you willing to include me in leadership in my voice? Those are two different questions. A lot of people want to hear the fuzzy story, right? Come, Ken, come tell us about solitary confinement. Come tell us about this and that, but they don't want to give an honorarium. So mm-hmm. is that equity or is that you using me to advance whatever conversation that you're having um, and then sending me on my way? And so those are the, some of the things that happen when you have DEI conversations and those things need to be clarified for people who need to have DEI conversations um, that don't just be diverse, don't just be inclusive, be equitable. 
um, wow. to, to people. Ken, um, we're going to go to a commercial break after this, I, but I, I want you, because I think if I wait until after the commercial, I'm going to lose the momentum. But you and I uh, and Ted and Richard recently did a diversity, equity and inclusion uh, coaching session with a CEO and um, her executive team. And we're not going to go into the conversation regarding the organization because we want to make sure that we keep their uh, story confidential. But in conversating with that group, you painted a beautiful portrait of equity and you talked about the playing field. And I would like to see if you would be willing to recant some of that, because that imagery uh, was just fantastic. And you were talking about in the space of uh, what we're going through now with the African-American, the plight of the African-American, uh, black sure. and brown people. And as it relates to what's going on since the what I would say somewhere around the beginning of summer for 2020, our world yes. just changed with the whole George Floyd uh, and then, of course, there are several other things that started popping up. Uh, and you used a great analogy uh, as we are still working to heal this country around some of the race issues we saw in the summer of 2020. Can you paint that portrait for our audience? Because I listen like Picasso. I mean, you painted it well. <laughs> <laughs> are, you, are you talking about the analogy I gave about Monopoly? Oh, yes. It was wonderful. It was a it was a wonderful analogy. And I I really want our Internet audience to hear it because it was one of the most well stated analogies I've heard as it relates to the slant that we see uh, with cultural sure. diversity, equity, sure. diversity, and inclusion. Well, if my memory serves me, it's been a minute, Christina, so forgive me if, if I if I'm not on point with it. But we were talking about the level of the playing field. And the analogy that I used to kind of describe how the playing field wasn't level was the game of Monopoly, which most people in America are familiar with. We've all played it as kids and some of us even played as adults. But imagine if we all sat down to play a game of Monopoly and there were a group of people that maybe had uh, different, a different look than us. And we said, okay, you're going to play Monopoly, but every time you pass go, you're not going to get $200. Right. And everybody else could get $200. And every time you land on a property, you don't get the opportunity to buy the property. And every time you landed on a utility, you would have to pay five times as much as everybody else. And imagine we had to do that 400 times in a row. Right. Then the people who did pass go in those 400 games and the people that were able to buy properties and accumulate hotels and houses and all of those things, they would have a substantial advantage over the group of people that had to play with no money. And so the game wouldn't be very fun for the people that didn't have money. And then the people that did would have a whole lot of fun. And then I talked about, okay, what would happen if we allowed people for the next 50 games after the 400 to accumulate some money, but a hundred dollars instead of $200 when they pass go. And maybe they could buy Baltic Avenue and Mediterranean, which were the cheaper properties in the projects, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they couldn't have bought, they couldn't buy Boardwalk and Park Place and some of the other nicer properties in the country. After 450 games, um, the people that have accumulated very little wouldn't be that happy, but the little that they did have, they would appreciate. And now imagine if the people that had all the money in property burned down or burnt up the little bit of money that the other team had accumulated. Um, and that happened in real life to black people in this country in, in several instances. It happened in Oklahoma when they burned down Black Wall Street. It happened in Rosewood. And it's happened in several places, both structurally and, and uh, economically. And so if you can wrap your head around the unfairness of playing a game like that, right, then you might can start to understand some of the complaints of black and brown people when they talk about the economic and social structures of the way the game is played in America, right? Because black people started this game at a supreme disadvantage because we worked for free for 400 years in this country, while the people that we were working for accumulated massive amounts of wealth. In fact, we're really able to build so much wealth in this country that they became a world power. They were able to build Wall Street. They were able to build the Federal Reserve. They were able to build airline industries and, and train industries and all the things that we take for granted every day were built off the backs of the Industrial Revolution. They were built off the backs 
of black and brown people in this country, indigenous populations in this country. So the game was unfair from the beginning and, and black and brown people are just now attempting to come from underneath the unfairness of that game. But th there's a, there's a big disadvantage in the playing field still. And so I think that what black and brown people are asking for is not something more than what white people have currently. What we're asking for is a fair opportunity to earn at the same way, at the same rate, at the same time that everybody else is, is, um, playing the game at. And I think that if, if we open up our hearts and we open up our minds to creating that type of space, that as the water rises, everyone rises. It's really a win-win proposition for everybody, right? It is. Wow. Ken, that was, that was powerful. Thank you so much. Listen, we're going to go to a commercial break. We're going to come right back and finish up with Mr. Ken Oliver. We're going to end our conversation today talking about re-entry. That's another sweet spot for Ken's heart. But hold one second. We'll be right back after these commercials. Have you ever wondered how to scale your career? Or what about lead your team to the next level of success? Or maybe you've thought about stepping out and launching that new consulting business. Whatever your personal, corporate, or professional desires are, Exec Talk with Paradigm 360 is the platform for you to glean from world-class thought leaders across the globe. Join the conversations on Apple, Android, and various podcast platforms. And once the show is over, keep the conversation going on Twitter at Paradigm 360 underscore LLC. Until then, in the words of our executive leadership coach, Christina Lee, we'll see you at the top. You're listening to Exec Talk with Paradigm 360 with executive leadership coach, Christina Lee. After the show, stay connected at www.paradigm360consulting.com. Now back to the show with your host, Christina Lee. Well, 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 we're back with Mr. Ken Oliver. He is from the Crop Organization, and uh, we are just excited. He has given us a wealth of information today, and we're going to start to uh, go into our descent and land the plane. But, Ken, before we go, I know uh, your passion uh, outside of diversity, equity, inclusion is a re-entry. You are really a big workforce uh, development guy. You really want to make sure that uh, people coming out of prison, uh, that they have equitable wages and, and, and that they have opportunities. And um, I want you to speak to that because I know that's where your heart is because there may be some companies out there that really don't understand the importance of re-entry and how it ties into diversity, equity, and inclusion. And there's some phenomenal, phenomenal leaders that are behind prison bars. And I think that's so important. Sometimes we, you know, people make mistakes in life and, um, but redemption uh, is a real deal and it can really happen to individuals. And so I think we have to keep an open mind as, as we um, kind of hang out in this space. And I want our, our corporate audience to really listen to what Ken is saying so that we could all start making a difference where we can. Ken, can you just kind of share a little bit about reentry, what it means to you and, and how can companies get involved in this process? Sure. Well, I, I guess I would start by just asking the audience and even yourself to imagine just personally for yourself, what's the worst mistake you've ever made? And just think about that for a second. And, and most of us, if we think about that, it's a mistake we probably haven't told anybody or, or if we were caught, we don't share too often, whether it's stealing as a teenager or, you know, cheating or doing something else that, that we probably shouldn't have done. I think everybody can, if they're honest with themselves, can say they've made a, a serious mistake in their life. And then I want people to think about what would happen or how would they feel if every time they went to fill out a job application, every time they went, on a date to start a new relationship. Every time they went to the bank to withdraw money, every time they moved into a new apartment or a new house or anything else that dealt with dealing with people in their life, that that was the first thing someone brought up. Do you remember 25 years ago when you were 16 years old and you know you rode in that stolen car, or you stole that pack of gum or that that makeup kit out of the store? If that's how you had to lead your life, it would be excruciatingly painful and shameful to have to do that. And a lot of people don't realize that when people go to prison, 
which obviously is a little bit more extreme example of a mistake, but still a mistake nonetheless. There are 4,000 collateral consequences that follow people from the moment they walk out of prison for the rest of their life, from being able to not be able to get a barber's license to a real estate license to 3,998 other things um, that attach to people. So it's really difficult for people to rebuild their lives when they come out of prison. And so I've, I've dedicated my life and the crop team has dedicated their life to be able to create spaces where people who are heart centered, people who are serious about making a difference in their community, people who want to do something different and don't want to be defined by the worst thing they've ever done. They have space to grow. They have space to become part of our community and contribute and pay taxes and, you know, do all the things that we do and take for granted sometimes in life. And so uh, we've created a program that has a foundation of what we call the four pillars. And the first pillar really focuses on personal leadership development and professional skill development, where we invite people to take agency over their lives and, and have some personal responsibility in the outcomes they receive. And then what we do is we skill people up in, in tech-related um, skills. Um, sometimes it's UX design. Sometimes it's B2B tech sales or project management sometimes coding. Um, and then what we do is we work with employers, not only in the state, but across the country and teach them in our six to eight week boot camp on how to include people with conviction histories in their DEI practice. And so including hiring people who have suffered a conviction is very important to diversifying um, your company's portfolio. And there's a lot of value add. Studies have been shown that people with conviction histories, a lot of it tied to the shame, are the hardest workers. They're the least to leave. They're, you don't experience a lot of attrition with people who have conviction histories. Um, you know, they, they usually work at less pay, although we know that that's not right, but they're willing to do that. Um, and it, studies have shown that they're some of the best employees. In fact, there's a, a manufacturing company in Cincinnati, I won't say their name, um, who 140 of their 180 employees are formerly incarcerated. And there's a business case um, that was made by a gentleman named Jeff Korzenek, who um, me and you had the pleasure of hearing at the um, Charlotte Works event or one of the events that Charlotte Works was at talking about um, second chance and fair chance hiring. Um, so there's really not only a moral case for us to provide second chances for people. There's also a strong business case about, hiring second chance talent. And I think it's important for us as a community, as a country to think about what the alternative is. If we continue to shut doors, if we continue to alienate and isolate, what is it that we want people who've served time in prison to do when they come home and attempt to rebuild their lives? Because if we're not giving them jobs, if we're not embracing them as a community, if we're not welcoming them to do better and holding them up, what is it that we think is going to happen? The recidivism rates in this country show what happens when you have a 65 or 70% failure rate, which in business would take you to bankruptcy if you failed six and a half or seven times out of 10 with your product line. Uh, most business owners would be out of business. And so as a country, we have to think about how can we do better in this space? And we we're really intentional about lifting men and women up and creating community and, and letting people know that they're not defined by the worst thing they've ever done and taking the lid off of their possibilities. Um, because most people who get into involved in the criminal justice system have suffered fractures of the spirit before they ever get there. Whether that come from their social environment, their family life, poverty is a big indicator of incarceration. And so those are some of the things that we seek to remedy um, with our program and with our program that we started actually in prison by training alcohol and drug counselors. Now we're training people in the tech space specifically, but we've had a, a zero recidivism rate um, with wow. the approach that we use. And so, you know, we think that we can scale that and that's what we intend to do. Wow. Ken, how can people get in touch with um, you and the crop organization? You all are doing some amazing things and some amazing things that are in the pipeline. Uh, is, is there a, website information that you'd like to share uh, about crop so that people who may want to join in and what you're doing can do so oft also i want to invite uh corporate leaders uh ceos uh decision makers to connect with these gentlemen and and bring them to your corporate uh entity so that they can talk about reentry and workplace development i think that's 
phenomenal that they're doing this. So, Ken, could you, as we sign off this evening, just give us a great commercial about crop and how <laughs> we can find you? Sure. Not Well, not only do we do workforce development and reentry, but we do coaching. We do DEI uh, conversations. We talk about personal leadership and we do that, too. And we have a great employer development boot camp uh, that we do that's six to eight weeks long. Uh, for your human resources department or your C-suite people. You can reach me at ken.oliver, K-E-N dot O-L-I-V-E-R at croporg.org. Again, that's croporg.org. Or you can reach out to the crop organization directly at www.croporganization.org. Wow. And I listen, I failed to mention that you are going to be a paradigm 360 coach pretty soon. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. That, that's where I'm learning my coaching from, Christine. I'm learning from the best. Oh, listen, thank you so much. Listen, if you were in the South, we'd say bless your heart. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's OK. My people are from the South. Right. So that's, I mean, I understand, right. that, I understand that. But listen, you on the best coast, the West Coast. And so uh, I, I just, you know, of course, every time we talk, I got to throw that in. Ken, it has been a joy having you on the show today. Thank you so much. Um, Listen, I hope our audience can see that there's a million other Ken Olivers in our prison system. There really are. I mean, there's, there's, I believe there's more good than bad. And, um, if you all get an opportunity to ever uh, connect with crop, you'll see some of these guys, uh, one, one of these gentlemen on staff, he's going for his seventh degree. I don't know how many people right. in the world have seven degrees. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I think he's kind of set the record. Uh, you know, I think uh, Richard has read over a thousand books. Ken has read more than 800 books or somewhere. What's the number, Ken? I might be inflating it. No, but I, I, might... I, I, no I'm over a thousand. I think Rich is at five or six hundred. I'm over. That's 1, amazing. Myself. That's amazing. And so and listen, Jason has two master degrees. He does. And and all of this was accomplished in a very toxic culture, a culture designed for you to fail. And somehow or another, you all embraced uh, redemption and the greatness in yourself. And for that, you were able to turn it around. Listen, my time is up. I thank you for yours. We'll see you at the top. You all have a great evening. Thank you for tuning in to Exec Talk with Paradigm 360, where executive leadership meets values, authenticity, and integrity in the marketplace. If you would like to know more about Paradigm 360 Consulting, check us out on the web, www.paradigm360consulting.com, or continue the Exec Talk conversation on Twitter at Paradigm360 underscore LLC. Until then, in the words of executive leadership coach Christina Lee, we'll see you at the top.